Trojan fans. It's time for another installment of the Trojan Blast Recruiting Podcast. We give you the inside scoop on everything about USC football recruiting from the experts who know what they're talking about. Which players have an offer, which ones don't, who the coaches like, and who our experts like. And now, here are your co-hosts for the Trojan Blast Recruiting Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher Ryan Abraham and uscfootball.com national recruiting analyst Gerard Martinez. Hello, Trojan fans. Welcome to the Peristyle podcast on a Thursday. We're going to talk some USC football recruiting. Yes, it's homecoming week. USC's playing Oregon this weekend. Uh, but Gerard, we've been doing as part of our 20th anniversary extravaganza celebrating this year, uscfootball.com's 20th anniversary covering the USC Trojans. Gerard did a couple of great pieces uh, talking about some amazing moments over the last 20 years in USC recruiting. Long pieces, but check them both out on uscfootball.com. So we wanted to talk to him about that and have him answer some of your USC recruiting questions. If you have questions for us, email us, podcast at uscfootball.com. Or you can leave us a voicemail. Just call 641-715-3900, extension 816-646. Or go to our website, peristylepodcast.com. Lots of contact information there. We're on iTunes, itunes.com slash Podcast, Stitcher Radio, Audio Boom, uh, all different places you can download the podcast. Tune in radio. Just go there. If you don't see us anywhere, just email me, podcast at usfootball.com. We'll make sure we get it there. But we're all over the place. The Peristyle Podcast. Been doing this for a while now. Hope you guys enjoy the show. Tell your friends about it if they're USC fans. And you want to tell your friends about our guest, Gerard Martinez. No one knows more about USC football recruiting than Gmart Live. Follow him on Twitter at Gmart Live. What is up, Gerard? How you doing, man? I'm doing good. I'm uh, recovering from that long piece on 20 years of USC football <laughs> recruiting. <laughs> it was It was a manifesto of sorts. It was. If you if you think Gerard's a little verbose uh, when he's talking on the podcast, you should definitely check out this piece. But I don't, I thought it was really well done, Gerard. Both of them, um, and you had to make it too because there were just so many great moments. And for recruiting, it's a little different than what you know. Dan Weber did a great piece on the top twenty memorable moments uh, for the football team. And if you mention fourth and nine, you don't have to say a whole lot. People know what you're talking about. But if you mention Sean Cody, then they might be like, huh, what's the story behind that? So you kind of had to go in a little more detail than maybe if you're talking about the team that things would be, uh, people would be more familiar with. Exactly. We really had to provide some context for how the team was at that point, sort of behind the scenes, what recruiting was at that point behind the scenes, um, you know, where USC was as a program in order to sort of establish, you know, why this was impactful. For us, it, it was not the best or top moments in terms of recruiting that that would have been easy and sort of, you know, obviously a little bit of subjective on on my account and sort of things that I liked. And I didn't want to make it about me. There was a lot of sort of personal stories that I could share and say, wow, you know, I was doing this at this particular time. And it was crazy because, you know, when Michael Morgan committed to USC, we were just completely taken off guard. And I was just, I think I was writing a Dylan Baxter piece or something like that. And I was in the middle of that, and somebody from Rivals had called me. I think it was our Texas A&M guy at the time when we were with Rivals, and says, "Hey, bro, Mike Morgan to USC." And I go, "Yeah, okay." And he's like, "No, really, he just he just committed on Fox right now. He just committed on television." And I'm like, "Dude, it, really? Like, I'm in the middle of this story. Like, I do not need to get pulled off of it 
for some joke, right? And I just, because Mike Morgan at that point had, had, had more or less publicly said that he was down to Texas A&M and Florida State. So for me personally, that was like, wow, this is what was going on, and this is why it's sort of a memorable moment. But I wanted to make it more about what was an impact for USC football program and the casual USC fan. You know, these things that, whether they know it or not, actually impacted the program so much that um, it ended up impacting that casual fan. The filthy casual fan, as uh, the gamers say, you know, he's a filthy casual. He's not a hardcore fan. Uh, well, there's a lot of fans out there that are not on uscfootball.com, and they're not following the peristyle daily and getting these stories. So, you know, when you talk about Sean Cody and you talk about behind the scenes of how close he was to going to Notre Dame and how his dad was a Notre Dame guy, uh, and he really sort of became the cornerstone, the turning point in recruiting for USC. He was the first really big-name local player that USC was able to lock down, and obviously being a defensive lineman, he helped a lot on the field just with his production. Uh, but, you know, I think it was just as much and just as important behind the scenes in terms of the reputation and him being a big-time recruit and other recruits seeing him go to USC and thinking, wow, maybe something has changed about USC. So he kind of started off this, uh, you know, 20 memorable moments, 20 memorable uh, storylines, and uh, it kind of goes, it's a roller coaster ride. I think each, you know, entry, some of our, our great news and positive things that USC fans remember, um, you know, like the, you know, the push for Bush, which is kind of, you know, a play on, you know, the Bush push against Notre Dame, but the push for Bush to get him signed and get him away from Notre Dame as a recruit, get him away from Stanford and UCLA, and we talk about that kind of in depth, uh, you know, how USC at that point, Pete Carroll really was convinced that he was going to be a receiver coming out of high school and really kind of recruited him in the beginning as a receiver. And it was Kenny Palomalo, the running backs coach, that uh, was recruiting San Diego at the time and obviously was Reggie Bush's position coach and kind of lobbying to say, hey, you know, we need to recruit this kid as a running back. He wants to play running back. We need to recruit him as a running back. And so, you know, there's a lot of stories like that that are positive, but then we also kind of delved into some of those uh, those negative, uh, the ones that USC fans remember and go, oh, God, I wish that didn't happen, Manti Teo, Deshaun Jackson, because that really, those are memorable. With recruiting, it's not just all uh, the stories you remember, like the team that are the great stories that, you know, they win and they got a national championship out of it or somebody broke a record here or there. It's just sort of the soap opera of it all, and soap operas have up and downs, and that's what recruiting is. Yeah, that's what the, what's great about the piece is there's there's the the Mike Morgan stories like wow never expected him or a, a Joe McKnight and and things like that where guys like that's amazing that USC got that guy and then like the Deshaun Jackson stuff uh, where you think he's going to USC it was funny I was down at the I think it was covering the uh, Senior Bowl back in like 2008 or 2009 or something it's like John David Booty and a bunch there was like seven or eight USC guys in the Senior Bowl down in Mobile, Alabama. And this was the time like Ed Orgeron was like between jobs. And, uh, and I talked to, I was talking to him and, you know, I went to like, you know, introduce myself again. He's like, Ryan, I know who you are. You know, he was, he was, he was great. You know, he just remembers everybody. And I, I'll never forget Deshaun Jackson's family walking by on the other side of this hedge. And they just start gushing over coach. Coach, And they were just, they loved him so much, you know, and the, the kind of impact he had, on recruiting and you so when you kind of get behind the scenes a little bit and you see like guys personalities and that's why someone was going to go to a school or not I mean they just uh, you gravitate towards people and Ed, Ed Orgeron was one of those guys there's a lot of personalities and and I kind of forgot 
how much Kenny Norton recruited for USC and the guys that he got. I mean, he was in charge of uh, Joe McKnight, getting Joe McKnight, Mike Morgan as well. I think he was the only guy in the staff at that time that thought they had a good shot at Mike Morgan. I think the rest of the staff was sort of like me and kind of were like, yeah, Mike Morgan's out there. He's a guy, but probably not going to USC. USC was never really his front runner. And Ken Norton had talked to uh, to Mike Morgan's brother. I think I got a text message from her or something right before the announcement and saying fight on coach or something like that. And so that was, I think, the first time everybody was like, whoa, this is like, you know, he's actually maybe going to commit to USC here. And uh, everybody else was kind of taken by surprise. But there's a lot of personalities, you know, for USC recruiting over the years. You talk about Ed Erdron. Obviously, he's a huge personality. He's kind of a, a centerpiece in that Sean Cody entry with, you know, just how relentless he was after Cody. I mean, he, the story goes, and, and Greg Biggins and I both talked about it because we weren't really sure how true the story was, but the, as legend has it, uh, <laughs> Ed Erdron showed up to one of Sean Cody's games. Uh, I think it was a playoff game later in the season, and they were recruiting him and recruiting him, and Sean Cody's dad came to the game. He saw Ed Erdron and asked Ed, what are you doing here? Uh, he's, he's not going to USC. And Ed was like, hey, we're going to keep on recruiting him, and, and you're going to be a, an option for him. And it was one of those things that, like, it looked like that much of a far-gone conclusion he was going to go to Notre Dame or, or maybe somewhere else. And um, and it was just sort of the relentlessness of USC and, and, and Ed Erdron and Pete Carroll and, and, and making sure that they stuck with him, they stuck with him. And then, you know, at the end of the season – uh, were a better option than maybe, you know, the, the family and Sean Cody thought they were going to be. And uh, so there's a lot of those sort of underlying stories. There's, you know, a lot of – what made this piece difficult to write was there's a lot there that you kind of have to hold back. You know, there's certain specifics, and, and obviously the, the interest is in the details and the nuance of it and, and the interaction between certain people. But you also don't want to – you know, hang people out there to dry. And there's other things which could turn out to be sounding more like allegations than anything. I mean, obviously, um, the DeAnthony Thomas piece of uh, going to Oregon and, and some of the things that we heard and, and with, you know, the Snoop Dogg Youth League and then Snoop Dogg's son going on up there with him on the official visit to Oregon, which is kind of random at that point. Uh, Cordell Brodus was not a big-time recruit at all. He was just a kid. He was a freshman going to the Diamond Bar. And um, he pops up, you know, on an official visit with DeAnthony Thomas and there's a lot of connections there between the Snoop Dogg League and individuals who are still very active, you know, in Crenshaw Football Youth League and DeAnthony Thomas. And then, obviously, Snoop kind of wanted to have some some type of apparel sponsorship and Nike. And there's a lot of there's a lot of people that threw some stuff out there, and you kind of have to hold back a little bit and say, you know what, I, you know, this is not going to be a a Yahoo, you know, investigative investigatory investigative piece, excuse me, um, you know, trying to trying to get people in trouble. So uh, it it was one of those things. You kind of walked the line. A lot of these stories, the details, it was years ago, so it's vague. And you kind of, you know, I I'm reaching out to like, you know coaches on the former staffs and talking to guys that I hadn't talked to in years about this kind of stuff and kind of going, hey, you know, with uh, this particular guy, do you remember, like, wasn't it this, that, and, and wasn't it, was it the basketball coach or the basketball AD that knew Dory Jackson's dad and blah, 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 and you're talking to people and, um, you know, you think, oh, yeah, they remember this like it's yesterday, but then it turns out that I actually ended up remembering a lot more than <laughs> those guys, and I'm trying to remember, I'm trying to refresh their memories, like, no, remember, you you told me that, no, that was it. And, and they don't remember, so they got to go back in your notes. I'm trying to pull up old stories from, like, my old computer 
and and stuff. And, and the other thing is funny because we don't because we're not a scout, and I don't have a Rivals subscription anymore. I don't, I don't go to Rivals. I don't read Rivals, <laughs> and so I I like I don't have my old stories. I don't have the the notes in those. You know, like I I, I know there's certain things that I want to mention. I, I was trying to think of the entire uh, group of official visitors who visited for homecoming week against, uh, against uh, Washington State when Percy Harvin and LaShawn La- McCoy were in town. And I actually asked a few of the former coaches in that staff and <laughs> had no clue. One of the, I, I, we'll rename nameless here, but one of the coaches was talking about Rache Codwell, and I was like, Dude, you're like not even in the same years. Like what are you talking about? That was he was not there that weekend. Like, was, don't you remember Lashawn McCoy? He had like he had a cast on. He was in crutches. The funny thing about that also. It's funny with, that you remember more than that, these guys, dude. It's just that's just hilarious. That you, that's why we're talking about Gerard knows his stuff. He remembers stuff that coaches tell him, and they don't even remember it to this day. That's hilarious. Well, yeah, but it, but obviously this is the, my job is to remember that stuff, so it probably <laughs> sticks in a little more. It's their job to recruit the kids, and if they don't get the kids, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. It's on to the next. Where like that was a story for us, and well, and and that week, and I remember specifically because they had a tailgate. It was Josh uh, Pinkert's family that used to tailgate uh, in the Coliseum. And it was like, I think the West, that West end of the Coliseum. And we had the RV back then and we actually ended up in the RV right next to them. And so they had all the kids come over and they had Percy and they had LaShawn McCoy and they had all those guys. And obviously, you know, we're not in there. You kind of keep your distance or anything, but you can see the guys all over there kind of hanging out. And it was like, Oh wow. And I just remember this, like this group of dudes. And that was a really crazy class just in general. And that was the other thing that there's so many stories like there's, you know, people are asking me about Jalen Ramsey, and there's so many different stories that you you could go on. You could have 50 of them, you know. And and with that, even that class, I mean, Michael Moore, or, or not Michael Morgan, but Michael Goodson. I mean, that was really one of the craziest stories I think in recruiting for me personally. And it didn't make it because I I don't think it had as much impact as the Percy Harvin or or maybe even Lashawn McCoy. Some of those guys that were I think higher up on the board and probably if they would have come to USC would have been a bigger deal. But the Michael Morgan, again, was probably a little more personal just because following that just gave me such a headache. The kid committed to USC over the summer, then went to Oklahoma State and committed. And uh, he, he committed silently to USC on his unofficial visit. But then like a, a week later, two weeks later, he went to Oklahoma and Oklahoma State, and then he publicly committed to Oklahoma State. There were, to- there were so many allegations. There was so much stuff about people saying he got paid off to go to Oklahoma State. There was a lot of those whispers going on. And, again, that's just allegations. That's just a lot of gossip, so you don't want to necessarily write a story about that. But then he went through the summer, and then early in the process, probably the beginning of October, he's like, I'm going to take all five of my official visits. He went to a couple schools. A&M was one of those schools. He ended up coming and officially visiting USC. And the funny thing about that was on his official visit to USC, his dad came out with him, and his dad met a lot of the parents of the other recruits. Alan Bradford happened to be on that weekend. I think it, I think it was the Notre Dame or UCLA weekend. It was whatever the last game of the season was for USC, and they brought in like five guys, six guys for that official visit weekend. And Michael Morgan's dad evidently was like trying to sell real estate property to people on the official visit. Like all the parents, he was like hitting them up for like, hey, man, you want to invest in this, you know, timeshare thing going on in North Carolina of all places. And I remember Alan Bradford's dad telling me about it, going, this guy is shady. Like, he seemed really weird. Like, there's something really off about this guy. And lo and behold, fast forward to, you know, after signing day, we see Michael Morgan, or Michael Goodson, Michael Morgan, Michael Goodson, two Texas guys. Michael Goodson ends up committing to Texas A&M. 
Uh, his head coach ends up getting a job in the support staff. His dad literally about a year later gets put in jail uh, for insurance fraud and it's like 25 to life in, in like real penitentiary, like real prison. Whoa. And so it's like one of those things like, oh, my gosh, I remember him trying to sell this real estate to people on his official visit. He ended up getting thrown in prison for it. So, I mean, crazy, crazy stuff and a lot of stuff in between of that, that recruitment that, you know, you remember and stuff like that. But um, yeah, it's just a lot of like, is this a personal story that I remember because I was, you know, covering it and I was so up to my eyeballs and this nonsense and this kid, you know, burned through like Michael Morgan probably burned through, like seven cell phone numbers during the recruiting process at that point. Michael um, or is this actually was impactful for USC, you know, as a program and that we try to go with that more like these are the turning points. These are some, some key stories that helped or hurt USC, you know, in, in a big way. Manti Teo, obviously, I think that hurt USC you know, later on that last that last season for Pete Carroll because they didn't get the linebackers that they wanted. You know, that was the class that they were supposed to sort of restock the linebacker position. You had Cushing and um, Kaluka and, and Luther Brown, and you had that amazing Ray Maluka, those amazing linebacker class, and, and obviously they all left, uh, including Clay Matthews, who redshirted. And so it was like, okay, Who's on the board? Well, you got Manti Tail, you know, grew up a USC fan, love USC from Hawaii, Polynesian connection. Boom, boom, boom. You're going to get him. He'll wear number 55. Uh, this Fontes Perfect kid, maybe even better, might even be a better athlete. He's over Corona Centennial, Trojan fan. Okay, he's already committed over the summer. I mean, you just were sort of penciling in, like, okay, man, here's the next group. And then it completely fell apart on USC. So that sort of was a story in and of itself. But obviously, the Manti Tail story, probably one of the hardest for USC to swallow. On signing day, when he tells everybody, you know, I'm going to go to Notre Dame, which made no sense just, you know, just with the context of everything. Again, Notre Dame was terrible that season. They threw snowballs at the team coming off the field because they had lost to Syracuse the weekend of his official visit. He didn't even show up for the second half. It was so cold. He actually stayed in the locker room and played video games with the other recruits. <laughs> so you're thinking, you're so, what? There's no way he's going to Notre Dame, but that's recruiting. Sometimes it's like the unexplainable happens. Yeah, it's great. We actually had Sean Cody on the podcast, uh, I don't know, a few weeks ago, a month ago, or something like that. He's doing the pregame and postgame show. Uh, so if you want to call in and ask him about his recruitment, they love getting calls after the game. So he's on the local ESPN radio here. So if you're driving out of the Coliseum this weekend, give Sean a call. Tell him we heard about him on the Peristyle podcast about his recruitment. Uh, it was, I mean, it was, I brought it up on the podcast too, Gerard. I mean, that was really what the first big recruit for Pete Carroll and kind of got this thing, uh, rolling. There's always good stories and USC has always been, you know, you know, good at recruiting, but the Pete Carroll years, that's when it was just, you know, the heyday and the number one classes and all that stuff. And it really kind of started with Sean Cody. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and Mike Morgan sort of is like, there's the, the epitome of how, how much they were rolling, how much momentum they have. I mean, they almost accidentally got a guy, you know, that was a four-star linebacker that at this point has played in the league for what, like six years, seven years maybe here coming up? I mean, he's been in the league for a while. He's not a starter for Seattle, but he's played special teams and he's been in the second-team rotation, um, you know, pretty much from the jump for Pete Carroll. So it's like, wow, when you can unexpectedly get a guy like that, you're doing pretty good in recruiting. Uh, one other thing before we get into the questions, Gerard. Uh, in the second piece, you talked about the Rising Stars camp. And that certainly was something that was great vision by Pete Carroll. And he created, I mean, it's kind of like, it's probably why the opening is what it is right now is from the Rising Stars camp. But maybe talk about that a little bit. 
Yeah, the Rising Stars camp was sort of that first branded camp that any college had. Um, you know, since then, you've, you've had Urban Meyer start the Friday night uh, lights camp, which is he started in Florida, and now he's doing Ohio State. And it's really just a, a camp where it's a, it's a national camp. You know, it's not just the local, hey, bring some guys in, and, and maybe, you know, we'll get a, a occasional out-of-state recruit that uh, that's interested in USC. This was sort of... It was it was a it was an event, you know. It was something that Pete Carroll he wanted everybody to come to. He wanted the media to cover it. He wanted to make it big, and it, it was like sort of the opening before the opening. And we talk a little bit about the the one guy that still stands out to this day as being probably the best overall athlete we ever saw at that camp, and that and it's saying a lot because there's been a lot of really good players that have come and gone that attended Rising Stars, but Patrick Peterson, who at that time was Patrick Johnson, uh, we talk a little bit about him and just watching him play and just if if you ever wanted to play football in a one-on-one format somehow and you needed a guy to catch the ball throw the ball run the ball tackle do everything it's like patrick patrick peterson would be that guy i mean he you know at this point he's like 6'1 220 or whatever then he was about 195 but he was the fastest most explosive uh he was strong i mean he could just do it all and every drill you watched him you're like man this guy is so fast so big so smooth and then at the rising stars camp they do this thing called trojan ball which is basically it's grab ass it's just a bunch of guys running around and and they throw the ball and and i can't even explain it it's it's sort of like um i don't even know how to say i can't even say that the 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 it's probably be politically incorrect to, to say the uh the 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 name of this uh it's non-tackle smear the um, guy with the ball, and we'll just leave it at that. Uh, we'll, <laughs> I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, Ryan, but I don't want to. I don't want to say the word because it, it might be categorized as hate speech, and we'll get taken down off of iTunes or some crazy thing. But anyways, there's, there's it, it's really just stupid little thing that they do. But they throw the ball around, they run around, jump and catch the ball, and it's called Trojan Ball. And we actually watched it with with Patrick Johnson and a lot of guys at the camps don't usually participate in that. Usually that's at the end of the camp and the star guys are just off the side and they're hanging out with the coaches, whatever. But Patrick Johnson was like legitimately into this. Like he was trying to become like an all American through Trojan ball. And he was just jumping over people, like literally just jumping over people, catching the ball. He's throwing the ball like flat footed 70 yards, just great. Like you just get to see his athleticism and we're watching this and you don't ever watch Trojan ball as a, as a, as a reporter. There's nothing to report on for it. You know, it's not really football. And it's just kind of like, it's just, like I said, it's kind of grab ass. So you're sitting here watching it, and usually we just kind of look around, and there's nobody really involved in it. It's like, okay, whatever, for the intramural kids that are, you know, paying to go to the camp. But Patrick Johnson, there he is, flying over people, scoring touchdowns in Trojan Ball. And it was just like, man, yeah, this is probably the best dude that's ever been to this camp. And even to this point, he probably is the best all-around athlete that we've ever seen uh, at Rising Stars. So that was kind of a an interesting thing in, in that defense that USC had back in, I think it was like 2010 class with, you know, all those guys like Ronald Powell and Jackson Jeffcoat and George Uko, Josh Shaw, Tony Jefferson, Deion Bailey. It was just this long list of guys. I mean, they literally had like two rotations on defense. And you just, you I mean, right then and there when you're watching, you're going, gosh, if they could just get all these guys, that's their defense for the next four years. I mean, these, all these guys. And, you know, was the, the handful of those guys – just in that camp on the first rotation of defense ended up playing in the NFL. They're still playing in the NFL. So those kind of things are, are pretty crazy when you see guys at that time and you can actually see it and make that call. That's when you know, wow, that was, that was pretty special. 
So make sure you check out the, the two pieces up on uscfootball.com. We got them pinned on the peristyle. They're up on the front page. Uh, we've had a lot of content go up, so, uh, you, you might have to scroll down a little bit to get to them. But yeah, lots of, lots of good stuff from Gerard Martinez on this one. It's all part of our 20th year anniversary. Gerard hasn't been here the whole time, but, uh, for most of it, most of the great recruiting stories, Gerard, but it, it was nice that you could go back and talk to guys like Greg Biggins and stuff to get some of the uh, older stories. Like I think Poly Five and stuff that was like before your time at USC Football. Yeah, that, there was. I mean, Sean Cody was before my time as a, as an actual writer. I, I remember watching Sean Cody in high school. I actually went to the uh, Texas Cal Shrine game and I saw him play in person. But yeah, some of these stories were in terms of the nuance and the things happening behind the scenes were definitely yeah, before I was actually writing. So reach out to guys like Greg Biggins who've been you know in the in in the business here. Uh, a lot longer than me, uh, Rick Kimbrell, I, I hit up who, you know, probably 20, almost 30 years now doing recruiting and, and writing. Um, and obviously the coaches that were involved at that time trying to, you know, gather more intel from them. But like, like I said, the, the coaches have forgotten more than, than I thought they would. And, and, but a guy like Greg, you know, in the business as well and has to write about these guys, he remembers these things. Like, they just they hit you harder. They're 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 of a bigger impact because our job is to follow those stories and to know all we can about those stories. Whereas the coaches, it's just sort of like in passing and you know, oh yeah, I kinda remember that. But they've seen like a hundred thousand players since that point, so you know, kinda understandable why uh those names come and go. Well let's uh jump into some questions, Gerard. Um we got John who wrote in. He said, do you think the growth of the seven-on-seven circuit has resulted in more receivers and defensive backs getting four- and five-star ratings compared to other positions? I think in shorts and a tank top, I could get a three-star rating playing in these tournaments. It seems highly rated wide receivers and DBs are a dime a dozen now, but it doesn't mean uh, they are great football players. The most dominant and possible to cover wide receiver I ever saw was Mike Williams, and wasn't he a four-star coming out of high school? Thanks for your time, John. Mike Williams was a four-star out of high school. A lot of people pegged him to be a tight end, actually, and, and that was sort of where Florida was recruiting him and probably the main reason USC was able to steal him away from Florida there uh, kind of at the last minute. I don't know that more are being rated in terms of, you know, Scout 300. You tend to have still an even amount of guys that, you know, there's a certain amount of linemen a uh, certain amount of receivers. There, There is something to be said, however, though, for the amount of exposure that the skilled positions have uh, in, in comparison to the linemen. We don't get to see a lot of the linemen. And I've been encouraging several people behind the scenes just to start some linemen camps, do more linemen stuff. And obviously they're a little shy because, you know, you, nobody wants to get hurt. And in a one-on-one with a lineman, uh, we've seen more injuries than we have with all the skill players. You very rarely in seven on seven actually see any severe or, or, or injuries that would be bad enough to actually keep a player out for a number of weeks in seven on seven, just in the skeleton drills. And, and, and we've seen some concussions and we've seen some guys run into each other, but really all in all, very rarely do you see uh, bad injuries, you know, knee injuries or ankle injuries or anything that, that is really bad. But with linemen, we've seen at camps and one-on-ones a handful of, of, of knee injuries and a handful of injuries. And I don't know what that is about because, you know, it, I mean, obviously there's more contact. I guess you, you, that would be the thing. The physical contact, even though you're not in pads, with a one-on-one with a, with a lineman, you're going to have 
uh, more physicality and, and perhaps just more stress on ligaments and bones and, and guys falling and things like that, there's more that can go wrong. Um, but you wouldn't, you would, you would think it wouldn't be as much, but I think probably the ratio is much higher. So people are just hesitant to start a lot of off season lineman camps, one on one camps. Um, but you know, it wouldn't have to necessarily be a lot of one on ones. I mean, I, I'd like to see a camp with linemen just necessarily running around, just being out there. Um, so I think in terms of evaluations and the exposure of linemen, there definitely could be a lot more. Um, it is not balanced in terms of, skilled players versus linemen. But, again, I think with the services and how they rank guys, I think there's sort of a quota. You know, there's so many linemen that they want to look at and they want to be able to rank. Uh, and the same thing with, with uh, defensive backs and receivers. Um, that, that's, that's my hunch. I haven't looked and actually seen there being, you know, numbers-wise, as opposed to maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago, how many skilled players are rated as opposed to linemen to now, I, I mean, I don't have those numbers on me, but I, I think that they would probably still try to keep some type of balance in terms of the actual ratings. Really the question is the evaluation and their, how much over-critiquing is there of the skill positions as opposed to the linemen. I think that's probably a bigger deal. I think you see a lineman, he has huddle film out, the huddle film is good, he's going to get rated. Uh, whereas the receiver, quarterback, somebody that's a skill position can have that same film out there, he comes out in the seven-on tournament, you get to see him quite a few times. And he's going to either drop or, or, or go up in the ratings, not just based on that film, but based on what he's doing in seven-on-seven. Seven. So you get to see guys, guys that are listed at 6'2", 190 pounds, and then you go and see them, and they're more like six foot five eleven, 175 pounds. And you go, okay, that puts a little more context into what he's doing on film and how good he's actually on film. Uh, whereas Lyman, that's really huge, that's really important and we just don't get to see enough of those guys in person. So uh, I think in terms of the actual evaluation, yes, there's definitely some issues there. Uh, I wish we could see linemen more during the offseason, but in terms of how many guys are actually being rated, I think the services are still trying to balance it out and still have their quotas of, okay, we want so many quarterbacks. And it doesn't mean that they always those numbers are always reached, because obviously if there's just not you know 30 really good linemen to have in the top 100, then there's not going to be 30 good linemen. If you, you know, But – I think they're always in the back of their heads when these guys get together. I think they want to achieve certain numbers, and so they're giving that many guys a look. It's just the differences between in person, you know, with, with the skilled players, and probably more on film outside of, you know, the occasional camps with the linemen. All right. Uh, good stuff there. John, he said, please compare the following players as recruits. They seem pretty comparable to me at the same stage of their career. So first he has... A large senior running back with great receiving skills, Joe Mixon, and Najee Harris. These kids seem, uh, athletic-wise, at least, very similar as seniors. So that's the first part. I'll let you answer that, and then he has another part, too. Uh, yeah, similar. Um, I think Najee Harris is a little smoother. Um, he's a little different of an athlete, a little more upright. Uh, Joe, Max, Joe Mixon, coming out of high school, was pretty powerfully built even then. Um, was very quick, had a great spin move, uh, was really good in the open field. I think Najee's a little more of a slasher. Uh, he's definitely a guy that, um, you know, if you can get him on that, that off tackle or just get him to put his foot in the ground and then get upfield, that's sort of where he's at his strength. Both guys were really good receivers coming out of high school, though. Um, Najee's a very good receiver. Joe Mixon was one of the best receivers as a running back that I think I've ever seen. I mean, he was really good every time we saw him and this is a perfect example seven on seven you know as a running back you're not going to get a lot of looks 
uh, with the crucial important attributes that you put next to a running back's name. You know, the, the things of like balance and breaking tackles and toughness. And there's a lot of stuff that goes into being a running back that you don't see in a seven on seven tournament. But the one thing you can judge is how good of a receiver a running back is and how much of a threat will he be in the passing game. And Joe Mixon was fantastic. He was always really good, had incredible hands in the, uh, in the passing game. And so, um, I think he, Najee shares that. He's not as good. I don't think he's as prolific as uh, as Joe Mixon was when he was coming out of high school. But he's definitely an above-average receiver. Um, and I think, uh, you know, to, to interject, you know, somebody that's probably a little more uh, USC-centric uh, to USC fans would be you know, Stephen Carr. And, and he's also a very, very good receiver. Uh, excellent out of the backfield. Runs really good routes. Very aware on his routes. And so, um, yeah, that, I, I would say the comparison, there's a comparison there. They, they're, they're a little different really more in their running style, and I think how they hit the line of scrimmage um, when you're talking about Joe Mixon and you're talking about Najee Harris. But, yeah, there are some similarities. Uh, you know, both are, are taller running backs, and uh, both are, are really good, and they're both very, very, very good receivers. And then on the quarterback side, he wanted you to compare these guys like as sophomores or juniors in high school, JT Daniels, uh, modern day, Matt Barkley, also modern day, and, uh, Matt Corral, uh, at quarterback. What, compare those guys. Well, you know, JT and Matt Barkley, there's some comparison. Obviously, they're both pocket quarterbacks, uh, both at modern day, both starting, uh, early, you know, as freshmen, um, and both being pretty successful early on. Uh, we kind of have to see how JT Daniels develops. You know, I mean, you comparing them just as freshmen, yeah, there's similarities there, definitely. Um, they both have uh, above-average arms. Um, certainly just the fact that they're able to be composed and play at that high level uh, that early on is impressive. You know, JT Daniels is, is leading probably the best team in California, one of the best teams in the country in modern day right now. They just beat St. John Bosco last week. Uh, that's, that's in and of itself is impressive. And Matt Barkley was, was sort of on that same level. Um, certainly when Matt Barkley was graduating, uh, modern day was, was not as high up. I would say that, you know, when Matt Barkley graduated, and, and really for most of his career there, modern day had some good linemen, but they really lacked a lot of good athletes on the outside. Uh, he didn't have a ton of great athletes to throw to. Victor Blackwell was really his one and only target while he was there for the majority of time at modern day, whereas J.T. Daniels has – a pretty good group of receivers and a pretty good group of skill players. Uh, but again, you know, we kind of just have to see how he progresses and develops. He may get much taller. Um, you know, perhaps uh, um, he becomes a little more mobile. I mean, there's a lot of room, obviously, to, to see how they both kind of graduate and, and that kind of finished product comparing that as opposed to just freshmen. But right now, yeah, I mean, there's a lot. On paper, there's a lot of comparisons with those two guys. Matt Corral, different guy. Um, different, just just in terms of, the athletic ability, uh, the way he throws the ball, just just different than both of those guys. Um, I think there's less of comparison there. He's a, a, a better athlete, I think, outside the pocket. Um, his trajectory in terms of how he throws the ball, he's much more of a zip, intermediate passing player. Uh, he, he throws the ball well across the middle of the field. He gets it down. He gets it to his receivers quickly. Um, he's not He's not as much of a long ball thrower, I think, as Jan, Daniels. Or Matt Barkley. Matt Barkley really early in his career, man, he was a he chucked it downfield a lot. He was really a really good down uh, the the field passer and sort of again. That's why I'm saying you know kind of seeing how these guys compare more as J T Daniels progresses through his high school career. Because Matt Barkley, I felt like 
sort of, I don't know if he lost a little bit on the ball, throwing it deep, but he just wasn't quite as impressive, I felt, uh, in, in the pass that he threw, the, tie, the, the, the spiral, sort of just the touch that he put on the ball deep. It seemed to sort of, he took a step back, and I, I don't know if that had to do with leg injuries and things or, or, or just confidence, maybe the offensive line he was I don't know what it was, but I, I kind of felt like that's, and it was weird because it sort of happened even when he was at USC. I felt like early on in his career at USC, he was better at throwing the ball downfield than he was later on at USC. I felt like that senior year really stands out as a year where he was kind of chucking the ball downfield, and that a lot of times he was underthrowing his guys. And if it wasn't for Robert Woods and Marquise Lee, he would have a whole lot more interceptions uh, next to his name. And so uh, we kind of have to see how J.D. Downs progresses and if he's able to keep the live arm. Um, but in comparing him with, with Matt Corral, different kind of players, really. And, and, and Matt Corral, like I said, is really more of an intermediate passer. And it's not because he doesn't have a big arm. He can throw the ball deep, but I'm – in terms of strengths and what he likes to do, he likes to keep it low. He likes to keep it, you know, the trajectory low and keep it on his receivers harder and faster. And in terms of athletic ability, I think he's better than both Matt and JT Daniels in terms of getting outside the pocket and even sort of being a design runner to some extent. He's not an athlete's athlete. He's not a guy that's going to run around and, and, you know, keep the ball a bunch on read option, but he can do that occasionally. He is actually pretty fast when he gets in the open field. All right, good stuff there, comparisons. Um, Eric wrote in. First he said, uh, need more recruiting podcasts. So, yeah, we, we like doing them too, uh, Eric, and I'm glad you enjoy them. Uh, but you can always go to uscfootball.com, go to the Peristyle, and Gerard's answering questions there every day. He loves doing that. I don't know if he loves doing it, but he does it. Um, <laughs> does uh, I do like doing it. I, no, I do. I do want people to be informed and get insight into having that constant discussion and know, I mean, you're subscribing to this website. I'm there for you. Like we're there. We're there to answer questions. We're there to give you as much information as we possibly can and to make it worth your while, make it a good experience. So, I mean, I like that. I mean, that's, that's my job. That's what I'm getting paid to do. It's not like, Hey, you guys can post in this message board and talk to each other if you want while we write stories for you. <laughs> that's not, that's not, that's not part of the experience. It is not. Uh, but th- thanks for Eric for writing that. But he says, does SC have a chance to steal a big time recruit or recruits on national signing day? Thanks. Love the show. You guys do a great job. Well, of course they have a chance. <laughs> we, we talk about this all the time. I mean, they have a chance. The question is how good of a chance. And, and then it becomes, you know, well, who do they have a really good chance at getting? Uh, we're still at a point where, we kind of have to get to this Washington game to see where USC really is at the end of the season because it still questions about Clay Helton. You know, they could still lose games where you're still going to have a huge uproar of fans saying that he should be fired. Um, Notre Dame and UCLA, I mean, you lose both those games, you think USC fans are going to be, oh, okay, yeah, let's bring back Clay Helton for another year. No. And so you're going to have this uproar of, yeah, he's on the hot seat. And, and that, that uncertainty, and when we talk about that uncertainty kind of kills out-of-state recruiting, that's exactly what it's going to do. So, I, I mean, are they in it for some five-star guys, some big-star guys? Yeah. I, I mean, even a local guy like Joseph Lewis. USC's definitely in it for Joseph Lewis. Everybody's talking about, oh, he's going to go to Nebraska and blah, blah, blah. Listen, if USC has some momentum, there's going to be that point in time where he's going to ask himself, do I need to go to Lincoln, Nebraska to further my football career when I could stay here in Los Angeles near my family 
and go to USC and do it. Like, there's just going to be that fork on the road for him. And if USC paints themselves as a, a winning picture and there's some momentum there and they can beat – you know, uh, a couple teams here at the at the stretch. You know, you, I don't know. I don't know if they have to beat. You know, I'm sitting people and say, well, what games do they have to win? Do they have to beat Washington to get Joseph Lewis? They have to beat UCLA. What's the magic win for them? I don't know that. But there's there's going to be potential if they can win those games. And it, and there's some excitement about Clay Helton. And there's like, oh, you know what? He's got Sam Darnold now. They've turned it around. Now there's a possibility that they could end up being the team that everybody hoped that they would be at the beginning of the season. So um, there, there's always that. And, and until we kind of – that plays out and we kind of see what's going on, we don't know who they have potential for and who are the guys that they might be able to land. Now, granted, I could throw names out there. Um, you know, Jay Tufeli is still a big fish out there uh, that sort of USC is on the outside looking in right now. I mean, he's looking at – I think Michigan – I've said Michigan from day one is going to be the school I think that's uh, – probably going to be the one that's going to be the hardest to get them away from outside of Utah, obviously Utah being the hometown favorite. But I think Michigan has really come on strong with him and, and have been strong really since last spring. Uh, but that's a guy that is going to take an official visit to USC. He's going to look at USC, probably the top defensive tackle on their board, um, you know, and, and he's a guy that should be official visit. So, you know, you get those guys in town and, and you have a good year. You have some momentum. you got some people excited about USC football again. Then yeah, they have they have potential to get some of those guys. So um, we're just gonna have to wait and see. You know, D'Angelo Gibbs will be on an official visit here in a couple of weeks. Um, he's a guy that you know, five star guy, athlete uh, out of Georgia. Uh, that uh, his sister actually played basketball at USC uh, a year ago. She just graduated, um, so he's got some ties to USC. He's gonna take an official visit. He's a long shot at this point, but you know, again, it, it's about having some momentum, winning some games. They went. Let's say they went out. And Clay Helton hits the road in home visits. Tell you what, that's a good staff in home. Uh, Clay Helton is very good in home. They could definitely steal a few guys. So you just kind of have to wait and see. Right now, it's it's just a matter of uh, you know seeing seeing what happens at that end of the season and seeing how much momentum they're able to have and and that being able to kind of just be that sort of tipping point for some of those out of state recruits, a guy like Jamel Cook or or one of those players that feel like they can come out here and and you know have that stage to get to the NFL. Yeah, certainly. This year, more than than just about any, it's going to be about how this team finishes on the field. So, very important final stretch for USC, not just for the season, but for recruiting as well. Um, James wrote in, he said, how is Clay Helton's reputation in the inner city schools and coaches uh, on the 7-on-7 seven seven circuit? Uh, I've heard Jim Mora doesn't have the greatest reputation there. I don't know about Jim Morrow's reputation. I, I not. I, I think a lot of. I think for the past few years, a lot of people kind of waiting for Jim Moore to leave UCLA, um, and that that was back you know three four years ago. I, it's just, it's odd. It's just maybe it's just his NFL pedigree that people continue to talk about him leaving and talk about him leaving. Um, I, I know he's had some 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 conflict with some coaches more at the high school level than uh, seven on seven. Um, but I don't know that it's enough or has been a big issue. Certainly I haven't happened across a whole lot of, uh, stories or coaches or anybody that's, you know, been completely disgruntled with UCLA because of Jim Mora. Um, and certainly I haven't with Clay Helton either. And I talked about this a little bit on the Peristyle, uh, a few weeks ago. Somebody asked some of a similar question. You know, I don't think anybody really knows Clay Helton. I don't think anybody has any issues with Clay Helton. 
But what type of relationship does he have with inner city coaches? He hasn't been a head coach at USC for very often, for, for very many years. Um, this is his first year. And as an assistant coach, I understand he's been there for six years, but he was recruiting the Bay Area first and foremost for Lane Kiffin. And then when Lane Kiffin got fired, he started recruiting quarterbacks specifically. And obviously, as a position group, that's very limited in terms of the number of prospects that you're going to have contact with. So that limits the number of coaches and schools you're going to have contact with. So while he's been there for six years, he hasn't been in a prime area for recruiting like a T. Martin or an Ed Ergeron or somebody where you would say, yeah, people definitely have an opinion of him. He's recruited enough guys at top schools that there is an opinion about who he is as a person and who he is as a coach. I don't think anybody really knows who Clay Helton is on either account. He comes off as sincere. The people that do have communication with him and just this past year uh, in the offseason, a lot of the kids that talked about him meeting him in person really liked him. I mean, I remember White Davis just gushing about Clay Helton, and he loved Clay Helton. He loved the way Clay Helton um, pitched his program, his vision. He was just really excited about Clay Helton. Now, you know, White Davis turned around and committed to Ohio State, and he's probably going to end up going to Ohio State. So what does that tell you? I don't know. But, I mean, I think just in terms of, like, there being a set opinion of how he is, no, I don't think anybody has that yet. Um, and, and it's in terms of inner city schools specifically, he just hasn't recruited there enough. I mean, this is literally his first year having contact with a lot of those kids, and this being his quote-unquote program, I think opinions are still developing. All right. Uh, good one there. Let's see. We'll go uh, Matthew. Let's go to Matthew. He said, you and Gerard have stated multiple times that the defense is trying to get bigger. Last year's class shows that, that and this year's class is looking the same. My question is how that affects possibly hiring a new coach. Personally, I like Clay, but if we had a choice to bring in less miles, I'd take that all day. Given miles SEC background, uh, would the current roster and recruiting class be an impact in regards to him coming to USC? Thanks for fight on from Matthew. That's an interesting question. I mean, specifically with miles, because obviously every coach comes in and has their system. I mean, you could say chip Kelly. Well, all we know of chip Kelly is that he likes long lean defensive linemen, a lot of tall guys. He recruited Eric Armstead away from USC and kind of built his defense around those type of guys, like a lot of 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, guys that are in that 270, 280-pound range. Not a lot of 330-pounders. Obviously, with their offense and the tempo that they play, it's hard to play those type of guys. So it's really sort of long, lean athletes on the defensive line. With Les Miles, harder to say because Les Miles is an offensive coach. So all we know from him from a defensive standpoint is sort of the defensive coaches that he hired and the systems they ran. Now, they've run a 4-3 at LSU from, I don't know, back from when I remember. I don't, I don't even remember them running anything but that. Um, defensive linemen have always been really good. I mean, LSU, if there's two things that they've always recruited well at um, that stand out to me are probably defensive linemen and running backs. Defensive backs have had a really good run kind of the past decade. But, like, traditionally in what they recruit, and I think it has a lot to do with the geography and sort of the demographics of, of what is available in the talent pool. And Louisiana, Texas, that sort of that area, that, that bayou area, a lot of defensive linemen and a lot of running backs. And so that's what they've stacked their program with. Um, would he come in, look at the current recruiting class, and say, 
yes, this fits what I'm looking for. I mean, it's hard to say. I, I think he would probably want to go after some of the guys that he was recruiting at LSU, um, probably more defensive linemen, maybe replace some of those defensive linemen. I don't know what his evaluation would be of USC's class. You know, would he come in and, and see a guy like Hunter Eccles and say, he's too light to play on the defensive line for me? I don't know. He had Travavius uh, Mingo um, that, uh, that, that played uh, at, at LSU. Was it Bartavius Mingo? Bartavius Mingo, I think, yeah, was, his I think name. That was his name. He was a guy that USC was recruiting that Ken Norton really liked. And, but he was like 220 pounds. He's like 6'6, 220 pounds. And you're going, okay, he might be really good, but how is he going to, you know, put on the weight to be able to play defensive line? Well, he ended up being a guy that, you know, it was a first round, second round pick. He's uh, with the, with the, I think Cleveland still right now. He was fine. You know, they put the weight on him. So maybe, you know, that, that would work out. I don't know. It's, it's really hard to sort of guess and project what Les Miles would, how he would evaluate the current defensive line class at USC. I think obviously uh, he, he, would, he would want a lot of defensive linemen. Um, perhaps he'd come in and say, hey, we need more running backs than this. We need another guy other than, than Stephen Carr. Um, you know, we know that he didn't recruit very good quarterbacks at LSU. That would probably be the one thing that would freak USC fans out because the, they're still going to have to sign probably a quarterback here in 2017 with Max Brown already, uh, you know, going to transfer and they need another quarterback on that roster. And, uh, Les Miles, I mean, all his time at LSU, even as an offensive coach, just didn't recruit very many good quarterbacks. Um, so it's, it's just tough. It's tough. Like I said, it's really trying to project how a coach would come in and evaluate the prospects that are committed to USC right now. The only thing that we can say for sure is that everything, every team that I think Les Miles has been involved with in terms of the defense that they've run, they've run a 4-3 defense. And this particular class, as a past class, is that USC's recruited here under Steve Sarkeesian, are 3-4 are four, uh, base defenses. So they're recruiting um, interior defensive linemen, when you're talking about defensive linemen, you're talking about guys that are going to have their hands on the ground and they're going to be playing inside the tackles for the most part. And then you're talking about linebackers, which are really two different positions. The hybrid position that is going to be sort of the defensive end linebacker position, Port Augustine, uh, Yushina Nwusu, and then your actual standard linebackers who are going to be inside linebackers. Um, so that's different. And so you kind of look at it and go, okay, you're not recruiting really hybrid guys to be standing up anymore. Those guys are have the hand on the ground. Um, and, and then you have to sort of make the assessment, are those guys existing on the current roster? You know, Do they want to get bigger guys inside uh, to play that three technique um, instead of having maybe guys that are going to develop more? I, I will say this, and I'm rambling too much with this question, but um, I, I think with this class you're seeing a lot of patience in projecting certain players, which I don't mind. And I think that has a lot of – a lot of SC fans are sort of anxious about that, but – you look at guys like James Lynch, uh, Jacob uh, Lichtenstein. These are guys that are not finished products by the just at all, like not not even close. They these are guys that USC sees. They're in that 240, 250 pound range right now. I think James Lynch is, is, is bigger than that. He's about 270. But these are guys that are going to be in the 290, 300 pound range. That's what USC is recruiting for. They, these are not strong side defensive ends. So that's what USC is projecting. If a guy like Les Miles comes in, he wants to run a 4-3. All of a sudden now you're questioning. Am I kicking those guys out to play strong side defensive end in a five technique, or am I still projecting these guys to put on the weight and put them inside as a three technique? 
And so that it's different, and it's it's just different. Three technique and a four three has to be a guy that can pass rush. He's got to be your playmaker. He's got to get upfield in that one gap. These guys are different. These guys are more interior three four defensive linemen that USC's recruiting. They're not guys that are going to be big time pass rushers. At least on film, they don't show that. They show to be more body catchers, plug in guys. And with three four, you're going to do that more. Um, USC still running a one gap right now with with Clancy Pendergast, but with that personnel where they are lined up, uh, more of a you know four inside technique, um, shifting them around. I think that that might be where USC uh, would change a little bit and have to pivot with a guy like Les Miles or any coach that would come in and want to run a four three as opposed to the three four that they're running right now. All right, uh, Mark and Laquita wants to know. He said, "Do you detect a change?" in the type of athlete, and it's kind of along the same lines, or change uh, scholarship allocations for different positions now that Clay Helton's the head coach. Um, you talked about defensive backs, but not a lot of other positions, like uh, maybe focusing on uh, larger blocking-oriented tight ends or faster receivers, maybe fullbacks, offensive linemen that can pull or, you know, or zone blockers, larger running backs or speed backs. Uh, fast defensive linemen or, or big space eaters. Uh, I know the staff needs to fo- focus on pressing needs, but if Gerard has any insight, that would be great. Mark and La Quinta. And that kind of piggybacks off that last question. Um, there's some overlap there in terms of talking about the defensive line and getting more space eaters and getting guys that they project that can come in and, and play those interior spots and just having more bodies. I think this is a – I mean, if there's one thing in terms of allocation of scholarships and where they're going – Lyman. I think Clay Helton wants to recruit Lyman, and he is much more willing to pull the trigger on Lyman than Steve Sarkeesian, Lane Kiffin, and Pete Carroll combined. Um, those guys were definitely like using the strategy of we don't want to over-recruit the lines. Specifically, we don't want to over-recruit the offensive line because if one of those guards or one of those guys on the inside doesn't pan out, they're dead weight on the, on the roster. They're just not going anywhere. Whereas if you over-recruit another position, let's say a receiver, uh, you can move those guys into being tight ends, uh, or you can move them over the defense to be a defensive back. If you recruit uh, a, a safety and it doesn't work out, bulk them up, put them down the linebacker. You can always sort of move a guy or shift the guy over if he's not playing well at one position. Whereas offensive line, you really don't have anywhere else to go. You know, special teams maybe, long snapper or something. But you're, you're not getting much value out of those guys. And with Clay Helton, I think he just feels like, we need to get bigger. We need to be more physical. And the only way we're going to do that is if we just have more flat-out bodies on the offensive and defensive lines. So in terms of the number of scholarships and the change at specific positions, I would definitely say that. I would definitely say that they're throwing more at the offensive line, defensive line. In terms of defensive linemen, I mean, we're talking four, five interior defensive linemen in this class. That's a lot. And people are looking at the guys that they've signed and the guys that are already committed and, and, and sort of mentioning some of those guys, you know, we already talked about uh, James Lynch, Jacob Lichtenstein, uh, Greg Rogers, 6'4", 285-pound defensive tackle from Las Vegas is out there, uh, Jay Tufeli we mentioned. There's a few guys. They want them all. And I think in order to get two or three of those really high-end type guys, you also have to have the mortar guys. Going back to the brick-and-mortar um, analogy, you know, you have to have those guys that don't have the huge egos, that are the workman guys, that maybe they need a red shirt, they could come in and they develop, and over time, sort of, sort of a guy like Christian Rector. Christian Rector, I think, is sort of 
I think he has a shot to be that success story of a guy that comes in, 250, 260-pound defensive end, and then comes in and develops, puts on the weight, ends up being about 285, 290, and is a very good player for USC, a guy that can contribute. I actually feel like he should be contributing more at this point. I'm surprised he hasn't played more. USC's using this 2-4-5 like every down, and I don't – I'm not sure I'm on board with that. I don't get that. I mean, I understand that that might he may, that Clancy Pendergast feels like personnel-wise, he's deeper at the defensive backfield than he is on the defensive line. But I still see Josh Fallow uh, or Fatu, excuse me. Josh Fallow is a tight end up in Sacramento. Um, get all these names mixed up. Uh, <laughs> Josh Fatu, the uh, the the JC transfer that came in from Long Beach City College. He's shown some flashes. You got a guy like Richter there. Who's a good player who's shown a lot of flashes in in, uh, in fall camp? You know, there, there's two guys there that you know you you could maybe run more three man fronts. Um, I think a guy like Christian Rector could be sort of that story of, yeah, he's not an All American, amazing. You know, I mean, he actually was an Army All American, so maybe it's a bad example. But I mean, it, he wasn't the sort of gem of that recruiting class. He sort of was like another guy amongst a few different guys that they got, you know, next to Rasheen Green or some of these other dudes that were like the big-name big players. And I think that's sort of what USC is trying to build right now. They want to get guys that are good, solid players, project. Maybe they're not the big playmakers. Maybe they're more body catchers. Maybe they're more gap defenders. But there's still guys that you can get in that rotation and you can still develop some depth. And you got to practice with those guys. If you want to develop this physical mentality, those guys, there's through attrition – there, you got to go through some of those guys. You know, you can't just have okay, we're just going to recruit five great guys and just have a you know a five man rotation that's going to be amazing. We're going to have three starters and all be all Americans, and then we're going to have two more backups that are going to be freshman all Americans. Like it just doesn't work that way. Do you want to have some depth? You got to start somewhere, and you got to start getting some bodies. And so I kind of think that's where this class is going. So again, in terms of allocation, it's gone to it's gone towards the, the defensive lines and the offensive lines. Um, other positions. USC wants to get bigger at receiver. I, I think that's that's something I they've they've definitely tried to stay above that six foot level. I think we're receivers. Um, they don't want small guys because of run blocking. That that goes actually back to Lane Kiffin. There was a lot of that uh, kind of thinking going on. Steve Sarkeesian, not that thinking totally. I'm gonna say opposite, but he did not have the same fear. I think of small receivers not being able to run block, and I think with his offense, he wanted to run different routes and, and sort of have more misdirection in his offense, have his receivers out of the backfield catch the ball more and be better in open space. So smaller guys were better fit for that. Um, but I think now we've transitioned sort of more back to the lane thinking and they want guys that are six foot two, six foot one that can run block. And so you're not going to see a ton of small receivers. We've talked already about the defensive backs, taller, lankier safeties, bigger, stronger, more like Pete Carroll linebackers got to be bigger you got to be big outside linebacker to play on the line of scrimmage and and go up against offensive tackle um so yeah it's it's, it's bigger across the board uh we got a couple more Gerard. we're already at the hour mark but we can uh we can knock these couple out uh people love the show so we don't do recruiting contests as much so we'll go a little bit longer ted manhattan beach now ted this was way too long so we're gonna like edit this down a little bit it's like <laughs> many points and many paragraphs and all this stuff so he wants to know uh, he said, well, first of all, really enjoy the podcast and the great information you provide to Trojan Nation. Um, he said he's going to try to keep it brief, but he certainly did not. But he wants to know there's two prospects, and he wants to know if they have strong interest in USC, 
There hasn't been much talk about them and wants to get your thoughts on these prospects. So it's Solomon, and he actually gives me the pronunciation, which is nice. Tulia Upupu, who's a four-star offensive linebacker, I mean, offensive, outside linebacker, offensive linebacker. Um, and then Jalen Hall, the five-star wide receiver from uh, Hawkins High School, who's actually a 2018 prospect. Did he give you the pronunciation for Jalen Hall? He did not, <laughs> no. But Tulia uh, Upupu, that was nice, you know. It's actually, and I learned this because I went to uh, one of his games, it's Solomon Nokiakua Stroud Tuliaopupu. So that's his full name. So that was uh, that was an interesting one. That was a cut and paster for uh, that uh, that Whoa. that uh, that article. Uh, uh, but you know, I you got to remember ten, pronunciation. Ten Manhattan so Beach, you, you failed. You didn't put the whole name there. So you gave me pronunciation, but you didn't give me the whole name. So sorry, Ted. <laughs> the whole, yes, and actually, the hyphen is incorrect on the roster for Max Prep. So I also uh, also learned that it's actually Nokiakua. Apostrophe Stroud, so it's not it's not Stroud Tuliaua Pupu, it's uh, it's uh, Nokiakua Apostrophe Stroud. So that's his middle name. So, anyways, um, how where does USC sit with both those guys? Uh, uh, you know, uh, Tuliaua Pupu, USC fan, group liking USC, um, has a good relationship with USC coaches. I get the vibe that he has a better relationship with Scott White, the linebacker coach at UCLA. Um, at the end of the day, it might not matter though. UCLA. Not really sure what's going on over there. A lot of questions, sort of coaches, and I don't know, everything right now in Westwood. Um, and with USC, I think they recruit them hard enough. Uh, Johnny Nansen, I think um, definitely you know tied in there. Um, good relationship with Johnny Nansen. Uh, I think USC's got a really good shot at him. Um, he'll be a guy that's regionally recruited pretty hard. He's getting some national offers, but at this point, again, offers means a little. A lot of schools throughout state nowadays just throw offers at any guy that, that pops up on the radar, you know, and USC does the same. I mean, it's the same thing. Some, some kid in Florida, you know, just, just has some good huddle film and no said, no, he had a good weekend in the Nike camp. Oh, oh he's got an offer, offer from USC. You know, they're just trying to get their foot in the door with these kids out of state, and they know they're probably not going to commit right away. So they kind of throw that offer out there. But really when it comes to nothing, bolts of it, I see him being more of a Pac-12 recruit and coming down to Washington, UCLA, probably USC. Maybe there'll be another school in the mix. Um, but um, a good player, very raw, kind of has a reckless uh, style to his game. Sort of just goes out there and just plays with his hair on fire. <laughs> he play, runs high, takes on blocks too high, doesn't have a lot of fundamentals in terms of dropping his hips. Um, but he's very physical and he's very aggressive and he attacks and he's got and he's got athleticism. So I mean, he's got all the tools there to be uh, a top player. Jalen Hall, Jalen Hall is, is the physical specimen. I mean, he's a guy that uh, you know, there's not a lot of guys that can stand next to, to Jody Lewis and, and look like a better prospect, but he's actually one of those guys. You know, he's a little taller, lankier, longer arms. Um, he's got really good speed. Uh, the thing about Jalen Hall, he's got to catch the ball better. You know, he's a receiver and he looks apart, but, and, and this is really as much of a seven on evaluation as it is in season, just because we can. I mean, we go back to that question about seven on seven and, and the ratings and, and skilled players as opposed to offensive linemen. There's a little more, uh, maybe an over analysis that goes on with seven on because we see these guys literally every weekend. And the one thing I've seen with Jalen Hall is he's just inconsistent catching the ball. He's not a real natural receiver. Uh, certainly not in, in comparison to Jody Lewis. Jody Lewis is just right now a better football player. And so a lot of people say, ah, Jalen Hall, maybe the best player in that class. I, I would, I would reserve judgment on that. Uh, having seen him play in person quite a few times, he's got to catch the ball better as a receiver and a guy certainly that has that much talent. He's just got to become a, a more natural pass catcher and better uh, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, the clutch catch, you know, making those 
big-time catches across the middle when it really counts. That's that's really what he's got to work on. All right, we got one last one from our buddy Bear Secutor. He said, Gerard, uh, I assert that Chris Peterson has recruited as well against USC as any school uh, in the West and maybe any school except Alabama and Ohio State. Uh, as I look over the Washington roster, I see at least 10 guys who USC would have been happy to sign. Would you agree? From 2016, he talked about Byron Murphy and uh, Isaiah Gilchrist. Uh, 2015, uh, Benning uh, Potoyoi, or I'm not sure how you pronounce his name. Henry Roberts, Austin Joyner, and Buda Baker. And in 2014, Elijah Qualls, Jermaine Kelly, Joe Mathis, and Daryl Stringfellow. Did I miss anyone? That's Bearsecutor. Uh, yes, you missed the – well, first of all, the the assertion is incorrect. Um, Byron Murphy and Isaiah Gilchrist are actually the only guys that you that, that Chris Peterson actually has recruited for Washington. So that's a list of a lot of guys. Some of those guys actually Steve Sarkeesian recruited. Uh, Joe Mathis was a Steve Sarkeesian recruit. Uh, Elijah Quayles, Steve Sarkeesian, Jermaine Kelly – Steve Sarkeesian, Jermaine Kelly is actually transferred out of Washington, so he's not even there anymore. Uh, the same goes for uh, the Demario Stringfellow is actually the name of the receiver that used to go to Washington that was recruited by Steve Sarkeesian but is now actually at Ole Miss. He's actually playing really well for Ole Miss. Um, so that's a list of names of guys that uh, Chris Peterson didn't recruit. Um, Henry Roberts, uh, Buda Baker, I, I, I think was in there. None, none of those guys, uh, I, I don't think any of those guys were actually recruited by Chris Peterson. Um, and a lot of those guys, you know, Henry Roberts uh, and, and, and Austin Joyner, those guys, are they're, they're going to, to Washington from the jump. I mean, those are Washington guys. Those are guys from Seattle um, and those kind of surrounding areas. So it makes it hard. I would say Byron Murphy's really the only guy on that list that Pete, Chris Peterson actually kind of really got away from USC. And in that case, you know, it was, it was a transition of a coaching staff. Um, they had fired – Keith Hayward, which, you know, like I said, you know, when that was going on, I, I didn't think that was a good move for Clay Helton, and, it, and it's shown out to be very true. It has not been a good move for him. Um, uh, Keith Hayward actually had a really good relationship with Byron Murphy. I don't want to say they would have got Byron Murphy. I mean, you know, how, 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 how can you make that, that call? But they would have been right there to get Byron Murphy if they would have kept Keith Hayward. Um, but they changed, uh, you know, staffs. Um, brought in a defensive back coach way late in the process. Um, didn't really have anybody on the West Coast really recruiting really hard at the defensive back position. Even, you know, the support staff guys were really sort of more on the East Coast at that point. Um, so Byron Murphy was just a guy that sort of just they lost in the shuffle and ended up going to Washington, and which I think surprised a lot of people. I think most projected he would probably stay at Arizona State. Um, and, and that sort of, I think, surprised people. Uh, at USC and maybe other schools that he actually went to Washington. Um, but uh, USC had a chance at him if, if they would have kept Keith Hayward, uh, but they didn't, and so they ended up sort of going through that transition. And um, right now they're kind of struggling with defensive back recruiting. Um, that's That's been an issue. It's been brought up a lot by the fans. Uh, I'm not, you know, <laughs> breaking news here. Um, they've lost a couple commitments in the defensive back. Thomas Graham, the corner out of Ranch Cucamonga. Um, they lost Bubba uh, Bolden, the safety out of Las Vegas, Bishop Gorman. Um, and they just lost the guy that was basically a silent commitment for USC. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to put him, put that on him, but he was really a heavy lean towards USC for a long time. Jalen Johnson from Fresno, and he just committed to Utah. So, you know, there's still time to get Jalen Johnson. He's still going to take his official visit to USC. This commitment, 
don't know, this commitment doesn't mean much. I, what we actually found out is that he has a shoulder injury that's going to keep him out the rest of the year. So that might have actually motivated him to commit early. Um, but why he committed early and picked Utah over USC is, you know, that, that's kind of interesting. And certainly, you know, USC is going to have to sort of evaluate uh, their defensive back recruiting at the end of the year. It's not the end of the year. It's not signing day yet. So we don't really know what the class is going to look like. But thus far, they've, they've taken a few on the chin. Um, and so, uh, yeah, and, and in regards to the question, some, some false assertions there. So, I, I, you know, can, can Chris Peterson recruit, out-recruit USC um, when USC is going through different coaches and losing? Sure he can. Um, I, I don't think Chris Peterson is going to beat out USC for a bunch of guys if USC is, is winning football games. Um, if USC is, you know, up there at the top of the Pac-12 and, you know, there's, there's, there's going to be some, some momentum there, yeah, I, I don't think so. But, um, you know, the question with the actual history of it thus far right now, uh, it's, it's just sort of a false premise to be able to, to answer. Gerard Martinez, nobody does it better when it comes to USC football recruiting. He remembers all kinds of stuff more than the coaches do, turns out. So uh, follow him on Twitter at GMartLive. You can follow me on Twitter at InsideTroy. Uh, thanks, Gerard, for coming on. Great show. All right. Thank you for having me. Right, that's Gerard Martinez. Make sure you check him out on uscfootball.com. Always great stuff, and I hope you guys enjoyed this latest edition of the Peristyle Podcast, our last one before USC takes on Oregon this weekend for homecoming. So hope you enjoyed the show, and we will talk to you next time. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. Don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your smartphone or tablet for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store.